You know, the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it inside the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. They brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark came, of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, they have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may not have read it, but you're probably familiar with a few of the stories in the classic epic poem, The Aeneid, by Virgil. Uh, this tells the story of the Trojan War, a prolonged conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans on the island of Troy. And in that story, the Greeks besiege the city of Troy for 10 long years. They besiege the city, but for 10 years, they're unsuccessful in invading and penetrating the walls of the city and invading in to destroy the city of Troy. And so finally, at the end of 10 long years of one failed attempt after another to break into the city, they finally have to quit. They finally have to resign. They finally have to sail away in humiliation and defeat. Well, the Trojans are delighted over this. The, the Trojans are just throwing a party. They're celebrating their great victory. They had withstood the Greek army. What a party it was when they were finally able to leave their city. And lo and behold, the Greeks had left behind some things in their haste. They even found a very large wooden horse. Well, the Greeks aren't going to do anything with this anymore. And so in their joy, they brought this very large wooden horse as a, as a victory, a trophy of the spoils of war. They had defeated the Greeks. They brought it into the city, and the party went late into the night. But at night, they closed the gates, and they all went to sleep happy and content. 
Well, as you probably know, that was no average wooden horse. Uh, That was a Trojan horse, a proverbial Trojan horse. Inside the horse, there was a special uh, forces, a unit of of special forces, including the famous Odysseus himself. And when the lights went off at night and everyone went to bed, Odysseus and his men snuck out. They unlocked the doors to the city. And as it so happened, the Greeks who went off with their tail between their legs, seemingly, had sailed back in the middle of the night, and the entire Greek army rushed right into the city and destroyed the city of Troy, something they could not do for 10 long years. They sailed off into apparent defeat, but through that they eventually accomplished the victory in their warfare against their enemies. This is something like what is happening here, although it's importantly different in significant ways. You see, here, if you remember the previous passage, and it sort of touched on this at the beginning of the passage that we read tonight, the Philistines had captured the ark. The Lord was apparently defeated by the Philistines because the Philistines defeated the Israelite army. And the Lord's ark, where they thought the Lord was boxed up in, I guess, they captured that ark and brought it into the temple of their god, Dagon. It seemed like Yahweh was humiliated. It seemed like he was defeated. However, it wasn't that Yahweh had to pretend defeat because he wasn't able to defeat the Philistines otherwise. That was the Greeks' story. That was their problem. They couldn't defeat the Trojans otherwise, except by this strategy. But for the Lord, he allowed his people to be defeated. He allowed his ark to be captured, not because he couldn't win the battle any other way, but because he wanted to show beyond any shadow of a doubt that the Lord wins the battle when he is apparently defeated. His great power shows all the way through this passage. Our big idea tonight is exactly that, that the Lord gains victory through apparent defeat. The Lord gains victory through apparent defeat. We have uh, two sections to our passage tonight. It's a short passage. The first is head-to-head battle, head-to-head battle. And then number two, heavy-handed judgment. Head-to-head battle in verses 1 through 5, and then heavy-handed judgment in verses 6 through 12. Now, if you remember the previous passage from when we studied it last, or just knowing the story, the whole reason that the Ark of God had been captured was that the Israelites were treating the Ark of God as something of a magic talisman. Desperate to have a victory in battle against the Philistines, they carted out the Ark of the Lord in order for the Ark of the Lord to in some way give them power, strength, by bringing the Lord into the presence of the battlefield. But the Lord had said that the ark of God was not to be treated that way, that it was to stay in the tabernacle, that it was never to be seen by anyone except the high priest and only then once a year. The Israelites had not honored God by bringing him onto the battlefield. They had despised his glory. And for this reason, the Lord permitted his ark to be captured. He did not want his people to think that anytime they wanted to win the battle, they just needed to cart the Lord out onto the battlefield. That was a terrible, a terrible loss for the Israelites. The priest Eli, his sons, were killed in the battle, Hophni and Phinehas. And then when the word, of the, when the word from the, the courier came to the city, telling Eli, the priest, that his sons had died and that the ark had been captured, Eli fell backwards and he broke his neck and died. 
And so here we're being brought into this passage, and we have this head-to-head battle going on between Yahweh and the god Dagon. And in verses 1 through 2, we're really brought into how the ark comes to be in the presence of Dagon in Ashdod. Notice that in verse 1, the the repetition of took and brought. Uh, It's translated captured in the ESV. When the Philistines captured or took the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then those words are repeated again in verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon. And that's emphasizing the next phrase. Took, brought, took, brought, set. And they set it up beside Dagon. There's a huge emphasis of the path of the ark of God into the household of Dagon. The message is clear. At least it was clear to the Philistines. Clear to anyone who was watching that Dagon had conquered Yahweh. That Yahweh now serves Dagon in Dagon's temple. But again, this message was clear to the idolaters. These idolaters who believe that their efforts at interior decoration, if we just put the furniture in the right way, this is going to somehow capture these cosmic realities of the battles of the gods, or we're going to bring it to pass that our God is going to be served by this Israelite God. But at the end of the day, it's a clear appearance of defeat. The Lord's glory is seemingly humiliated by being brought into this place until we get to verse 3. Until we get to verse 3, and I think the original Hebrew is actually a bit more dramatic than the way it's translated in English. The Hebrew goes something like this, And behold, Dagon falling before him to the earth, before the ark of Yahweh. The idolatrous Philistines, they have to then take Dagon and return him to his place. Originally, the ark was taken and put in the place of Dagon, but now Dagon has to be taken and set back up in his place. One commentator, Dale Ralph Davis, he writes this. This may not sound like a punchline, he writes, but imagine a god, and they have to stand him up. What kind of a god is this who can't stand up for himself? How would a godly Israelite respond upon hearing this story with the only pious response? Holy, uproarious laughter. This is meant to make us laugh whenever we read about this pitiful God who thought he had won the battle. At least the people thought that Dagon had won the battle and has now fallen before the Lord. Well, that humiliation is over, right? Well, yes, until the very next day. We get to verse 4, and again, the language is very dramatic. And behold, Dagon falling before him to the earth before the ark of Yahweh. Now we're getting an explanation for why the Lord acted as he did in the previous chapter. If the Lord was so concerned about his glory, why would he ever allow the Philistines to defeat his people? Why would he ever allow the ark to be captured and carried away? It's because the Lord did not want his people to win a victory against the Philistines on their terms. If they were in the process despising the Lord's glory, treating him as a means to their ends, a tool for their purposes. But the Philistines have also despised Yahweh's by, again, arranging the furniture, an interior, interior decoration design that was supposed to communicate the superiority of Dagon over Yahweh. Yahweh really serve Dagon? There's a clear appearance of defeat. 
But the reality is very different from mere appearances. You see, while the Israelites didn't win on the battlefield, what Yahweh is doing is he is the champion going out before his people to do head-to-head battle directly with the God of the Philistine. This battle between Dagon and Yahweh is actually going to foreshadow a later battle. This is one of the more interesting things about this passage, the way this battle, this head-to-head battle, foreshadows what we're going to read in 1 Samuel 17 in the battle between David and Goliath. They're also, it's a battle of head-to-head between one champion going out for the other, for, for, one, for the one nation and another champion going out for the other nation. David goes to represent Israel. Goliath goes to represent the Philistines to fight individually. And the winner of that head-to-head battle was the one who won the battle. He won the battle for his respective side. And the way this story is told, with Dagon falling face first, and I found the head of Dagon being cut off and lying on the threshold, this is the same language that's going to be used to describe the fall of Goliath. Goliath falls face down before David, and what happens? Well, David cuts off Goliath's head. The exact same thing that happens to Dagon is going to happen later to Goliath. And in verse 5, we find out this is not wishful thinking. This isn't just a a nice story that the Israelites told themselves later on to make themselves feel better about their oppression by the Philistines. We read here a reminder of the practice. If you want to know a practice that's happening to this day, the writer says, why the priests of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon, of Yahweh. It's because of the battle that was waged and won in the temple of Dagon. What we're seeing here is a unanimous verdict. The Lord has gone out as the champion of his people, and in head-to-head battle, he has defeated Dagon. Whatever you thought had happened when the Philistines defeated the Israelites on the battlefield, nevertheless, the true battle was won in the temple of Dagon. See, in those days, the nations believed that The battles on earth served as proxy battles, as representative battles on earth of what was happening in the cosmos, in the heavenly places, of the battle of the gods. There were always, the gods were always battling. This is why empires were born. Uh, Syrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Egyptian Empire. These empires were made where uh, the kings of these areas thought that their god wanted to expand the glory of that god into the world. And as the God would go ahead of the king and his army to fight on behalf of that nation, that God was having to fight back the gods of those other nations. And if there was a powerful God who could push back the other nations and their gods, well, that would be played out on the battlefield. What happened on the battlefield reflected divine cosmic realities. And so there was something of a transitive property. I don't know if you remember much of your math classes, but the transitive property says that if A is greater than B, you have one number, and it's greater than a second number, and you know that that second number is greater than a third number, B is greater than C, then by the transitive property, you know that A is greater than C. It's not a direct battle, but you know because one defeats the other, and the other is able to defeat the other, that you know that the first is better than the last, and the same thing was true about the battlefields, so the people thought. However, this logic really breaks down. Um, College football fans do this. If one team defeats another and that team is able to defeat another and you can sort of go through the chain and find out which team is better than another, there's actually an entire website, mytheemisbetterthanyourteam.com, 
where you can put in your team in a particular year and find out who the best team is. Nebraska is better than Alabama last year. If you recognize that Nebraska beat Rutgers last year, Rutgers beat Boston College, Boston College beat North Carolina State, North Carolina State beat Florida State, Florida State beat LSU, and LSU beat Alabama. Clearest day, Nebraska was a better team than Alabama last year. Case is closed, right? But of course you know that those battles by proxy, those transitive property battles, don't work out on the gridiron the way that we think they would in that kind of a comparison system. Israelites lost on the battlefield, but it had nothing to do with the representative strength, the God of Israel versus the gods of the Philistine. That battle in 1 Samuel chapter 4 was no proxy on the strength of Yahweh. When the head-to-head battle came, the Lord showed directly that he was infinitely stronger than Dagon. He was not brought into the temple of Dagon to serve Dagon. He was brought there so that Dagon could fall down for him, for the ark. But furthermore, after the Lord wins this head-to-head battle, now the rout is on. Now the battle is going to continue. The Lord is not just going to combine his head-to-head battle in the temple in Ashdod, We're going to see the results of this battle spilling out into the Philistine people. The Philistines may have defeated Israel in that battlefield, but now the Lord is going to be defeating the the, the Philistine people on their own turf. And now we come to the second section of heavy-handed judgment. And the reason we're looking at it by that title, the section by that title, is because of the emphasis on the Lord's hand throughout this passage. Uh, Richard Phillips, a commentator, He points out how, remember, Dagon's hands were cut off. It was a symbol of Dagon's powerlessness. He has no hands to do anything with them. They were cut off. They were knocked down when they fell down. But then the first thing we read when we turn to what the Lord does in Philistia, we read the hand of the Lord was heavy upon the people of Ashdod. And he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. The Lord's hands are not bound. They are not cut off. The Lord's hand is still mighty to save and to bring judgment against his enemies. What we see here then as as the Lord moves forward again, again, again and again, we read about how his hand is hard against them. We see that in verse 6. We see that in verse 7. The hand, his hand is hard against us. We see it again and again. They are emphasizing the hand of the Lord, hard against us and against Dagon, our God. In the midst of this, people start to develop tumors, probably something like the bubonic plague, tumors that people are developing, and they're suffering tremendously. They're dying and they're suffering because the Lord is extending the battlefield, is extending the route against the Philistines. When things get too bad at Ashdod, notice in verses 8 through 9 that the Philistines say, hey, We've got to do something here. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's send it over to Gath. But when it goes to Gath, once again, the hand of the Lord is heavy there as well. There's more tumors, more panic. Then in verses 10 through 11, the ark is sent on to Ekron. And there we have a deathly panic. We're still dying, having tumors. And once again, the hand of the Lord was very heavy there. So that in verse 12, you read about death and tumors and the cry of the Philistines going up. To heaven. If you've ever played the game of pool, you know one of the ways that that game works and the rules is that if you pocket one of your balls, 
you get to keep going. The turn is still yours. It's still your, I guess it's called inning. I looked up the, the rules for pool. It's, your inning is, is still with you. You get to take the next strike. There was one pool game I played as a child. Um, I don't know how it happened, but I was able to keep, continue sinking my balls, the, one that I, the ones that I had to, to go after, until I won the game without my opponent ever being able to take a shot. This is like what's happening here. The Lord continues. One victory on top of another. The Philistines are never able to regroup, never able to figure out what's going on. One victory on top of another. And what's really important about this is that this route, once again, foreshadows what's going to happen in 1 Samuel 17 when David defeats Goliath. Because in 1 Samuel 17, verse 52 we read that after David defeats Goliath, after the head-to-head competition is over, Israel's champion defeats Philistia's champion, we read the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and to the gates of Ekron. They pursue the Philistines to the exact same places that the Lord is pursuing the Philistines in this preview of that great battle between David and Goliath. The Lord went ahead of his people in this passage to show them the way that he was going to work, to show them that when things seemed dark, when their enemies stood against them, the Lord is showing them that he is the one who is more powerful than their God, that he is the one who can establish them. And so if you think about that passage, David on that day went out to meet Goliath in what was not yet apparent defeat, but what seemed like it was going to be certain defeat. How could David stand against Goliath? Goliath was a giant armed with a sword and javelin, and Goliath cursed David by his gods, like Dagon. Well, if we've been reading 1 Samuel, we know how that went. We know how powerful Dagon is when Goliath curses David by his gods. But what's remarkable in that passage of David's battle with Goliath is how many times the word hand appears. It appears Ten times in really odd ways. Because at every point, the narrator wants us to know that just as the Lord had cut off the hands of Dagon here in chapter 5, just as the Lord's hand was heavy against the Philistines, so that same God was going to establish the hands of David in his victory over Goliath. Let me just read you these. When David is talking to Saul and explaining, I don't, I don't want your armor, he says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw, literally the hand of the lion, and from the paw, again, literally the hand of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. Again, we're worried about these hands. Are the hands of Dagon going to be powerful to establish the hands of Goliath? 1 Samuel 17, verse 40, David took his staff in his hand, his sling was in his hand, And then when David went out on the battlefield in 1 Samuel 17, verses 46 through 47, he said to Goliath, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And then there's a detail in verse 49. It's totally unnecessary, totally superfluous, unless the narrator wants to keep our attention focused on David's hands. It says that David put his hand into his bag, and took out a stone, the stone that he slung his sling to cast at Goliath. You don't need to tell how he, everyone knows how he got the stone out of his bag, but if you want us to be thinking about the hand of David, and be reminded 
that it's the hand of the Lord who's heavy against the enemies of Israel. That's why you include that detail. And then verse 1 Samuel 17, verse 50, there was no sword in the hand of David after Goliath is tumbled to the ground just like Dagon, falling face first. There was no sword, so what did David do? Well, he went and took the sword of Goliath and cut off that giant's head just as Dagon's head is cut off in this passage. The whole chapter ends in 1 Samuel 17, verse 57, where we read, As soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the hand of the Philistine, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Yahweh here binds the hands of Dagon, and later Yahweh will empower the hands of David. And just as the Lord here is pursuing a route against the Philistines all the way to Gath and to Ekron, the Israelites will do the same thing. We are seeing the same message declared in both places, that Yahweh will be victorious, but it will not be because of the strength of his people. It will not be by their hands, according to their strength. It will rather be by the hand of God, who is heavy against his enemies, to win the battle. The application that we see is as the Lord is going out and doing single-handed combat, head-to-head combat against his people, is again that the Lord gains victory through apparent defeat. Now, the greatest place where the Lord did this was at the cross. Where the Lord gained victory out of what seemed to be the defeat of our Lord Jesus. But I don't want to suggest that this is a direct prophecy of that. I don't think this, is, this counts as a, or constitute a direct prophecy as though you could read this and there's sort of a straight shot from here to the cross. What I think what we are meant to gain from this is an understanding of the way God always works. You see, we think that the biggest things, the strongest things are the things that really count, the things that can really win the battle when the battles need to be won. But we are reminded here of what we see everywhere in Scripture, that whenever the nations rage, our God who sits in the heavens laughs. The story is something like Samson. Remember all of those times that Samson kept saying, oh, this is how you capture me. You've got to weave my, ha- my hair into uh, something. You have to tie me up with fresh bowstrings. You have to do all of this. And what happened? Well, every time Delilah would wake him up and say, Samson, Philistines are upon you, he'd break right out of it. He was playing with them. He was toying with them until he went too far and told them where the true secret of his success was. Well, in a similar way, God wants it to be known that he is not the victor of the strongest army. He is not gaining victory because he has the most resources at his disposal. He's gaining victory because he is God. He is the sole, only, true, living God. We see an example of him doing this here. He he brings himself to the lowest possible point where the ark is captured and set up in the temple of Dagon. And we'll see this later in the battle of David against Goliath. There's a reason that's such a proverbial idea, David versus Goliath. What we are seeing through all of this is God's MO, his modus operandi, his method of operation. And when we then go ahead to the cross, we are reminded that our Lord Jesus, he wasn't just in a bad place. It wasn't just that he was arrested. It wasn't just that he was pierced 
It wasn't just that he was dying. It isn't just that his heart stopped just momentarily for a few seconds or a few minutes or even a few hours where theoretically maybe someone could have resuscitated. There's a reason that Jesus remained under the power of death, his body buried in the grave for three days. So that while the demonic powers and principalities thought their victory was assured, so that the nations believed that the chief threat to their power is Jesus had been disposed of, at that greatest moment of the Lord's apparent defeat. It was only then that our Lord burst forth victorious from the grave, scarred hands and all. The Lord gains victory for us through apparent defeat, not by the bow, not by the sword, not by the javelin, but by the pierced hands and feet and side. God who took on flesh and laid down his life for us. But then how does that apply to us? It's easy to read stories like this in the Bible and, and be encouraged by them, inspired by them. Our imaginations fire for them. We love to hear these stories. It's great. It's hilarious that Dagon fell down in his temple. It is amazing that David defeated Goliath, but how do these stories touch my life? Well, I think all the time, one of the questions in the back of our mind is, Wondering, am I alone? Have I been abandoned and left to fight this for myself? But of course, we're told in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, that what happened in the Old Testament happened to God's people then as an example. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. God is showing us not only that he gains the victory through apparent defeat, but that what he does paves the way for us. Again, this is paving the way in 1 Samuel 5 for what we see in 1 Samuel 17. When David is going to go through the exact same thing, when his hands will be strengthened against Goliath, not because he is strong, but because the hand of the Lord is strong. And this same God is working in our lives. He gains victory through apparent defeat in our lives. Where do you feel defeated today? Where do you feel that your hands powerless that you've been left abandoned by yourself. Yesterday morning, I was struck, um, uh, you're on the McShane Bible reading plan, as some of you are. Uh, the psalm yesterday was Psalm 142, verses 4 through 5. And I was struck by the line, Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. You ever feel that way? It's a line from the psalm that's teaching you to pray, to express those feelings that we all feel from time to time. But it's as though the psalmist, David, in the very next line, catches a hold of what he has actually said. And he reminds himself, and he says this, Lord, I, I cry to you, O Lord. I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. When we feel that we have been abandoned, the same God who wins the victory in apparent defeat is the same God who is our refuge, who is our portion in the land of the living. The reminder that we have today is that the Lord has already cut off the head and the hands of our greatest enemies, sin of death and the devil. 
So that as we go through this life, wherever rulers and the citizens of this world wage war against us, first of all, they are absolutely powerless. Their hands are tied before the battle begins. But second of all, even when the battle feels the most hopeless, we can remember that the Lord, oh, he loves to win the, his people's battle at the moment of their apparent defeat. Not just in Dagon's temple, not just on the battlefield against Goliath, not even only at the cross, as though that was God's last moment where he worked that way in history. He does it even today. He does it even for you. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged. Where you see apparent defeat, Lord's victory is already won. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, whose hands were established even when they were pierced, even when they were bleeding, even when those hands will be scarred throughout eternity. We thank you that through our Lord's crucifixion and death and burial, that through that apparent defeat in the eyes of the world, our Lord Jesus won the victory. What a great hope we have, and I pray that you would lead us to trust in him, to look to him for salvation over sin, death, and the devil, and to trust you. Is he, your son, the one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, is continuing as our king to lead us in battle, the single champion who goes out before us. Trust him wherever he may lead us. Even as people here tonight are in very difficult situations, put them in your hands and ask you to win the battle. We pray all this in Christ's name. Well, tonight as we close our service, um, let's stand together and sing Trinity Hymnal number 92, A Mighty Fortress Our God, as we think about the great fortress, the great refuge that our God is, even when everything around us seems powerless. Luther, working off of Psalm 46, so greatly captured, the power belongs to the Lord. Let's stand and sing. <laughs>